Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour, as we say every week, is devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world we live in, but what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they might believe for just one hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Here in the studio with me is my pretty bride, Ravinder, and she's just sparkling full of great news today, great excitement. So, Ravinder, share some of your insight and uh, tell our listeners how they can learn more about the show. Oh, what a lot of positioning there, full of sparkling (laughs) water. It's a bright, sunny day, and it's really hard to be down when it's bright and sunny, Um, You know, I think like the majority of people, I am tired of Corona time. I want to go back to party time. Okay, so let's just picture that collectively that, you know, let's get this stuff gone, get get it all shaken off. Um, So, yeah, and then um, do remember we have a Facebook page. So any information that gets shared on the air, any earls that they say or any of that kind of stuff, we will post in there. So don't panic if you don't quite catch a link or catch a title of a book or something like that. We will post it up there. Just go to Facebook and search for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. It's as easy as that. All right. In this week's spotlight, I'd like to discuss the idea of fairness. What does it mean to be fair? Now, most people are generally pretty certain they understand the difference between fair and unfair. That is, until you dig down into the grit. What do I mean by that? There's an old story of a group of blind men and an elephant. As the story goes, when they encounter the elephant for the first time, they each touch a different part of the animal and come away with a different interpretation. According to the Buddhist text, Udana 6 and 4, quote, out of curiosity, they said, We must inspect and know it by touch, of which we are capable. So they sought it out, and when they found it, they groped about it. The first person, whose hand landed on the trunk, said, This being is like a thick snake. For another one, whose hand reached its ear, it seemed like a kind of fan. As for another person, whose hand was upon its leg, he said the elephant is a pillar like a tree trunk. The blind man who placed his hand upon its side said the elephant is a wall. Another who felt its tail described it as a rope. The last felt its tusk, stating the elephant is that which is hard, smooth, and like a spear. Close quote. The moral of the parable is that humans have a tendency to claim absolute truth based on their limited subjective experience as they ignore other people's limited, subjective experiences, which may be equally true. In other words, truth often is colored by perspective, and in just this same way, so can the idea of fairness be equally framed. Imagine, for example, that you owned a business. 
you had worked hard for many years to grow your business and preserve its value for your sons and daughters. Along one day comes a person who informs you that they can triple your business earnings in no time whatsoever. However, they want a percentage of the increase in your earnings. If they fail, you owe them nothing. Would you agree? Well, I believe most of us would. So let's imagine a little more. Say this person grows your net earnings tenfold. Are you happy about that? Well, probably, right? However, realize that now this person is earning several times what anyone else in your company is earning. Is that fair? Jack, or more formally, John Francis Welch Jr., was an American business executive, chemical engineer, and writer. He was chairman and CEO of General Electric between 1981 and 2001. When he retired from GE, he received a severance payment of $417 million, the largest such payment in business history. Did he deserve that? Well, let's see. In 1980, the year before Welch became CEO, GE recorded revenues of roughly $26.8 billion. And in 2000, the year before he left, they were nearly $130 billion. By 1999, he was named Manager of the Century by Fortune magazine. Clearly, his stockholders believed he was worth that. So once again, do you think it was fair? And if not, by what standard? That said, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs is a slogan popularized by Karl Marx in 1875. The principle refers to free access to and distribution of goods, capital, and services. In the Marxist view, such an arrangement would be made possible by the abundance of goods, Excuse me. <coughs> well, pick that up again. All right. Would be made available by the abundance of goods that would be produced in the system with full development of social and unfettered productive forces. The idea was there will be enough to satisfy everyone's needs. Now, that might sound good, but how has it worked out for those who tried it? England tried just after World War II, and Margaret Thatcher had this to say during her term. The trouble with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. Moreover, is it fair to expect that those who work the hardest should be paid the same as those who work as little as necessary to get by? or those who fail to contribute to society in any way. So once again I ask, what is fair? Certainly a level playing field for all is necessary if we're going to have any fairness. Of that there's little doubt. But even there we can become confused because it seems our Creator didn't exactly create us all equal, at least from the perspective of our talents and opportunities. There are those who naturally excel in ways that give them a laid up. And, of course, there are those Darwinian draw winners who come into wealthy families connected to power. Who's to say that's fair? 
Life is much more complicated than some simpleton notion that the world should be fair. Fair in what way and to whom, where and when. As for me, where I strive to find fairness in all my dealings and with all whom I may interface, I am nevertheless aware that the best fairness comes in how we treat one another, not in who does what or who owns what. If fairness is important to you, I would encourage you to remember that it begins by treating everyone with respect. Indeed, the golden rule might just be the ultimate measurement of fairness in today's world. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and that goes for your business dealings as well. Those are my thoughts. I welcome yours. How about you, Ravinder? What do you think? You know, there's a there are quite a few things in there that I find really interesting. I do like the elephant story. I've heard the the story before. I'm not sure why it came across differently to me today, but you know, it does remind me of all those comments when people talk about what talk about well, that's my personal truth and that's my personal truth. And I've always had a problem with that because truth is truth it's either true or it's not true so how can everyone have their personal truths but your elephant story sums that up beautifully you know and I think um, what you actually get out of that is you know there isn't a personal truth but you do have your own perspective and how you view life and it's important to communicate with everyone if you're talking and sharing ideas you have a much better possibility of actually coming to the truth um, and then of course your whole discussion about fairness is totally valid you know um, there are people out there who will do the bare minimum you know we've had those discussions before I mean take for example if you have a person who is drawing unemployment of some kind having some benefit and so they are say getting ten dollars an hour well do you think they're gonna make the effort to get a job to earn $11 an hour because they're doing all of that work for just $1 an hour more. You know, it's just some of those questions that are constantly there. There, there isn't an answer. Um, I mean, I do find it challenging. I think the, the best thing you get to is the golden rule. You have to look at everything individually and say, you know, is that the best that we can do? And you have to take that on personally as well. I think it all starts with a personal, is that, is that the best that I can do? Is there something I can do that's better? Stop looking to everybody else to fix it. I mean, when it comes to the environment, there are lots of people who talk that way. You know, what's the point of me recycling my plastic bottles? It's these big companies that are causing the issue. And so they want to leave everything up to, to the big guy. And it's like, no. I think we all need to do our bit. Yeah, the big companies can do more because they have more ability to, but responsibility starts here. Good. We'll ask our guest to follow up on some of those thoughts today because he is an expert on that. But we confuse often facts with truth. Krishnamurti said truth is an interpretation. Facts, on the other hand, are facts. We should remember that, in my view. All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Jeannie Cisco Meth, and we discussed her work and book, Bully Proofing You. 
Amy wrote, I absolutely loved your spotlight. People need to realize that bullying is bullying, whether it goes on as nasty comments on Facebook or in the halls of a school. Callie wrote, you said a mouthful, my friend. Society turns a blind eye to this form of bullying. Alice wrote, this is an important topic to discuss. It seems right now, instead of listening and understanding that everyone is entitled to their opinion, society instead becomes offensive and belittling. How sad. Moving on, Mike wrote, belief is so very important. I mean, real deep down subconscious beliefs which become annoying and totally guide and direct us. Inner talk is a solution to creating beliefs for life, health, wellness, success, and emotional and physical well-being. Well, thank you, Mike. Cynthia wrote, I would say you provide the tools in inner talk to help those who have made a conscious decision to rewrite their ticket in life, to live their own dreams, to change those subconsciously programmed beliefs, which began in utero to eight years, plus undo traumatic programming and or to also deprogram and reprogram your subconscious minds for what they desire or deserve in their lives. Thank you both very much for all you do and continue to do. You like that, don't you, Ram? Of course. All right. I want to thank all of you for your feedback. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We sincerely appreciate your remarks. You can opine by sending me an email to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now to today's show, The Velvet Rope Economy with Nelson Schwartz. This is a great book. You're going to want to get the book, so write it down. I'm going to say it again, The Velvet Rope Economy. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Nelson D. Schwartz has worked at the New York Times for a decade and has covered economics since 2012. Before that, he wrote about Wall Street and banking for the Times and also served as European economic correspondent in Paris from 2008 to 2010. He joined the Times in 2007 as a feature writer for the Sunday Business section. One of his projects is his continuing Velvet Rope Economy series, which looks at how inequality is transforming business. In 2014, Mr. Schwartz was the recipient of the Nathaniel Nash Award, given annually by the Times to the reporter who, quote, best excels in business and economic news, close quote. Mr. Schwartz is a graduate of the University of Chicago and worked for 10 years at Fortune Magazine before joining the Times. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Nelson Schwartz. Great to be on. Thank you. Indeed, our pleasure. I loved your book. It, it, oh, it, it's provocative. It, it, it's sad in many, many ways. It's, it's also so insightful. It's something I think everybody needs to read. And I can't be more forceful about that with our audience. I just And, and again, I just loved it. On this show, oh, Nelson, we like to know three things. Who is the guest? What is their message? And how do we use it? To that end, tell us what you're passionate about. Uh, I'm passionate about telling stories and, and writing stories in an engaging way and meeting people of, from all walks of life in America who I can write about in terms of explaining the economy and how the economy works, who's doing well, who's not doing well, you know, who's sort of be- maybe benefiting from things that are unfair or, or certain advantages, and looking at those who are disadvantages and you know, kind of exploring how we could make things fairer or, you know, create more opportunity 
in our society. And I'm, I love writing about those topics. That's great. Fairness. You heard today's spotlight. Yeah. Uh, what have I got wrong? I mean, would you say the golden rule today has become the guy with the gold makes the rules or what? That's, I mean, unfortunately, I think you're right in that you're never going to, you know, you know, come up with a society that's completely fair, completely equal, and that those attempts in the past, like in Russia or in China or in Cambodia, you know, have ended terribly when you had these utopian schemes to sort of produce, you know, quote, some kind of higher ideal of fairness. It's kind of scary. On the other hand, I feel like things have kind of moved in the direction of, the guy with the gold making the rules in our society, and some of those ratios, like with the CEOs, I mean, I'm not saying CEOs should make the same as someone on the factory line, but when you get to a certain, you know, ratio of hundreds of times earnings, then things seem out of whack. I couldn't disagree more, but if you use the example that I used in the spotlight, Jack Welch, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's understandable, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing new about that, or or am I missing something? I, basically, you had, I mean, Jack Welch and GE, you know, GE is, has been a disaster, unfortunately, in the years since Jack left. I, I knew Jack Welch. I've, I've interviewed him. He was a brilliant manager, but things sort of went too far, and the, the company got way too dependent on financial measures and, and uh, GE Capital. And I think, you know, it got away from its industrial roots and ran into trouble. Um, I think too much, too often, you know, with CEOs, um, the the rewards are, you know, swing so much to financial incentives and stock options and things like that. You didn't have the opportunity to do that 50 years ago because tax rates were much higher. So, um, I mean, I, I think basically workers should you know, you don't want to take away the incentives for CEOs to outperform their competitors. On the other hand, you want workers to be able to participate in some of those gains as well. True. All right. Your book title. Uh, I, I, I yeah. had a, the opportunity to discuss this upcoming show, and, and I know what the velvet rope economy is. Maybe I intuit that because I've seen velvet ropes, and I know what they are, and how they hurt first class away from second class, and so on and so forth. Um, but everybody I, 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 I've spoken to said, what is the velvet rope? What, what did you, I mean, what were you thinking when you, you created that title, and what do you think it conveys to most people? I mean, what I'm trying to get across is just the ever more uh, fine tiering uh, and different levels you have as a consumer. Um, just the way that there's nine different groups to board an American Airlines plane. I mean, first class and coach are not new. But the idea that you've got nine different groups, and if you're group nine, by the time you get on the plane, there's nowhere to put your bag because all these spots have been taken in the overhead compartment. And um, it's you know it's just brutal, and you you feel like a second class citizen, and just just the way things are divided up, or like on cruise ships, um, again you you have on Norwegian a section of the ship where ordinary passengers can't go, uh, the haven, and it's it's physically separate, 
you know, you, you, you enter with a key card. And if you're a normal passenger, you can't go there. And just that kind of division and, as I put it, as I say, tiering, feels kind of un-American. I mean, I feel like America comes from a more egalitarian spirit. And some of that's lost uh, as you have these velvet ropes spring up in, in sort of consumer setting after consumer setting. Couldn't agree more. But, I mean, your book sets up an argument for inclusion versus exclusion. And I think it does a mm-hmm. great job at that, you know, um, both financially and, and opportunity-wise in our society. Uh, and before we get into some specific questions about your 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 book itself... What drew your attention first to this? What what was the waking moment when you said, "Hey, hold on a minute. It's not egalitarian at all anymore." I think it was a couple of things. I, I think the cruise ships really caught my eye. Um, just I, I went with my grandparents on a cruise ship um, in the '80s when I was in high school, and you know, some people had bigger rooms than others, but. Beyond that, it wasn't like the Titanic with different classes and that kind of thing. And, you know, now it, it is more like that. It's a throwback to the Gilded Age. And it said to, said to me that this is a metaphor for what's going on in our society. And some of the things going, which we can talk about, some of the things going on in amusement parks, too, also were something I, as a kid, went in the 80s, and there wasn't much tearing at an amusement park. We were all thrown in there together. And now you can buy all sorts of fast passes and other things that enable people to skip the line while everyone else waits. Do you think that this exclusion, inclusion, this difference, and of course, you know, that's been around for as long as we've had a capitalistic system, as long as, I mean, you know, I'm getting very long in the tooth. And as far as I remember, there's never been a time that money couldn't buy you a better seat or uh uh, the front of the line or uh, some such thing of that nature. But as bad as, I mean, your book is a bit frightening when when you really look at uh, the extremes that have happened or that are going on today. Do you think these differences are feeding polarization in our society? Yeah, I really do. I mean, and I think they they explain some of the polarization and they explain some of the anger uh, that you see in American life and in politics, and where not only do people from blue and red state America disagree with each other, we know that, but sometimes they seem to want to kill each other, um, or at least hate each other, with with an intensity that sometimes seems disproportionate to the issues at hand. And, um, uh, And I think one... Where where the velvet rope economy comes into into play here is that if you don't come into contact with people who are not like you or people from a different social class, it's much easier to demonize them. And I think you know with the velvet rope, wealthier Americans can just withdraw uh, inside the velvet rope and never even come into contact with Americans of, you know, say, middle class Americans or poor Americans. And I just think. It adds to the divisions and the divisiveness and the isolation that we see in our society. I've got to ask you this because it is COVID time. But if you look around at the closings that are going on uh, across the nation and the businesses that are likely to be 
the most injured as a result. It's not the top 1%. It's not the top 10%. It appears to be, you know, that that middle-class business person. In fact, uh, I heard the other day on one of the business channels that uh, in the restaurant industry, um, small business, 40% were expected to fail by the end of the year and not come back. Um, it, it would seem to me, and, and I'm just sending this by you thinking aloud, that this, the way we have treated COVID is or could arguably be said to be a method of redistribution of wealth. It will minimize the middle class it will maximize the upper. I mean, you look at Amazon stock. It's gone from 1,800, mm-hmm. 2,000 a share to over 3,000 a share. This is stuff you know you live with every day. Do you see it that way, sir? I mean, I don't see it as intended to redistribute wealth. No, what yes. I do see is, what I do see is the way the velvet rope economy comes into into play with COVID, namely People who can afford concierge doctors can get tests and can get results right away, whereas others can't. Uh, as you say, small to medium-sized businesses are closing, whereas big businesses can endure it. Um, I see that. And I see among the victims of the fatalities are disproportionately poor people and people of color. And it's quite striking just how disproportionate you know, the, victim, the victims of this thing are. Yes, amen to that. All right. Uh, some of the critics of your book, and I've got to get to this. It's, you know, the kind of thing that if sure. I don't treat it, somebody hits me. Um, they've argued that the conclusions in your book are weak. So, for example, one review on Amazon states this. The conclusions of the book are weak, although I enjoyed the examples of more egalitarian business initiatives. Schwartz overlooks the fact that the middle class and poor in the U.S. can entirely blame the rich and corporations for this sad state of affairs, since many non-wealthy citizens resist paying taxes for funding public services. Schwartz suggests redistributing wealth and rebuilding our social infrastructure through fairer tax laws, which what I which I would call unlikely. What side of the velvet rope, after all, is Congress on? To that sort of comment, what do you say? I mean, and it's got to be a pretty comment. When you look at it and you say, wow, you know, you've got a, you know, Schwartz has got just an incredible argument here, and this is frightening, and, and it ought to be different, and we need to do something about it. But how could that ever be done with Congress where it is? What do you say to that? Um, I mean, I would say two things. First, I mean, I think I'm not calling for you know wholesale redistribution of wealth. I mean, I wouldn't. No, I know. Say the I wouldn't say the book is a Bernie Sanders kind of you know outrage uh, fest. I, I think it's more diagnosis of what's going on. In in terms of remedies, I I think you could you know alter the tax system. Uh, reasonably and make some, you know, moderate changes. And I think, look, uh, depending on what happens in November, you know, uh, given the polls, we could see Democrats take um, the Senate and the presidency. And if that were to be, you would be in a position to see some tax reform. 
Okay, on that, we have a break coming up, Nelson. So we're going to go to that when we come back. I want to get right into some of the specifics that you cover in your book. We're speaking with Mr. Nelson Schwartz about his work and book, The Velvet Rope Economy. Again, I'm going to tell you, you want to go get this book. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Nelson Schwartz, one word, Schwartz's, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z, NelsonSchwartz.com. All right, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicky wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Mr. Nelson Schwartz about his work and book, The Velvet Rope Economy. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at nelsonschwartz.com. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. By now you all know that music psychology is an interest of mine, and it is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So now, your chosen music, Nelson, is the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want. So please tell us, why is this music important to you? And more importantly... How does it inform us about who you are? Um, I guess uh, in terms of why I like it, it's a great song with great storytelling, and I think they are words to live by, um, that you can't always get what you want, but you can get what you need, um, and uh, it's a good philosophy for life. And uh, I had not heard that acoustic version that you just played, so uh, that was a new one for me. Um, in terms of me, I think uh, I'm a big fan of classic rock. So um, I'm 52, so some of the classic rock is a little older than me, but I love, love the classic rock of the 60s and 70s. Cool. Good. Well, I happen to like that one, too. That's a good explanation. All right. In your book, you spend a considerable amount of time on cruise ships and amusement, amusement parks. Why are these examples significant? I mean, how do they set themselves apart from so many other things in our life where cash talks and, what, BS walks? I think they're kind of psychologically, you know, where, like the American way of play um, for adults, cruise ships, and for adults and kids, amusement parks. 
and I think they are places that have a, you know, a, a, that are psychologically important to Americans. I think, you know, look how much coverage and attention has been paid to whether Disney was going to reopen in Florida um, amid the virus, and um, and I think they are uh, they're again like both of the both are metaphors for our society. Um, and they're worlds unto themselves, but metaphors for our society. And I think the um, both have changed quite a bit. I mean, in the in the '60s and '70s, if you know, if you if you watch the Love Boat, because that was set during the '70s and '80s, yeah. in the Love Boat, you know, everyone was in this sort of you know came together in the same restaurant, same areas. They may have been in different rooms. Same with amusement parks. You know, we all went to the amusement park, had the same experience. Now we we have very different experiences, um, and just just the way those things changed, I thought could tell us about changes in the broader society. The, the thing that caught my attention um, when I was reading your book, particularly about amusement parks, not so much about cruise ships, uh, but amusement parks, is you know. <clears throat> You go to an amusement park with your children. So you take your children there, and in that sense, you begin to educate them to what you call this tiered economy. Because, well, wow, hey, Dad, how come they get to cut in line and go before us? Well, mm-hmm. Why don't we go over to that line, Dad? Um, and I and I when you when you say psychological impact, that that's the very first thing that occurred to me in reading about, um, well, reading your book about uh, entertainment. Uh, do you do you see that kind of in enculturation or inculcation actually uh, having longevity, actually conditioning uh, the public to the idea to accept? Um, runaway capitalism as we know it today? I, I think there is, um, you know, a kind of a countervailing force in some cases uh, in terms of the velvet rope economy, namely social mores. And I think social mores have changed to make this kind of thing more acceptable. I, I don't think growing up in the 70s, I don't think this was as acceptable. And I think now children see it, and kids pick up on this stuff right away. I mean, my kids are uh, almost seven and three, and they ask me, "Are we rich?" You know, you know, they'll they'll ask that kind of thing. And in New York, yeah. you know, there's riches around the corner and big buildings on Park Avenue, and it's just it's part of the landscape. Um, and I think you know when yes, when you're waiting on the line, and all of a sudden. A bunch of people go out in front. It, kids pick up on that right away. And I and I, and I, like you say, I, I think it not only do they pick up on it, but it begins to condition them to a state of, you know, this is what's normal. And in that sense, there's less resistance to it. Um, but when we're talking about social mores, you know, you. you you talk about gas guzzlers versus electric cars and how social restraints can actually work to curtail some of um, this this uh, tearing, to use your word. Uh, do you think that combined with, you know, I mean, 
I guess what I'm getting at is if society becomes more aware, and that's one of the reasons I'm, you know, I'm promoting your book. I'm happy to do that. If society becomes more aware that they will become more resistant and that some of the marketing ploys, particularly, you know, some of those product differentiation uh, approaches that are taken in your book or that you explain in your book, uh, can be set aside the same as read, you know, you can write the tax code. We can change the tax code. It can be fair. There's no question about that. But society at large needs to begin to resist this, do they not? And if, I mean. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one reason I wrote the book, and I hope, you know, that people would uh, draw from it, namely that, you know, these things aren't inevitable. Uh, in many cases, they're fairly new. And we don't have to live with it. And I think that's why, in the conclusion, I pointed out some companies that, you know, don't uh, practice this, namely Southwest Airlines and the Green Bay Packers, among others, to show there are alternatives, and it's not like uh, you can't be successful in business without taking this kind of approach. You can't, you know, an egalitarian uh, method can win. If you... I wandered around in that question because I was coming off the top of my head. But um, unpack for our audience uh, the strategy called product differentiation that you explain in your book, how that works and how we get just kind of shoehorned into accepting it. Um, basically, you know, there's, there's different methods uh, to, cha- you know, to charge more for the same product uh, you, the, the goal is if you're selling something, you, you want to be able to charge more for it, and so you differentiate the product. Um, and you you want to find ways in which to differentiate it so that people will, you know, pay more, not less, and, up, and upgrade. Um, and you know, there has a long history. In France in the 19th century, um, the railroad didn't want to put um, the didn't want to put roofs on third class, uh, even though they could afford to put a roof on third class, because they wanted anyone with uh, enough money to upgrade to pay for second, which would have a roof. And in turn, second would have very, very hard cushions, and they wanted people who could afford softer cushions to upgrade to first. So you make tweaks in these products in order to get people to pay more. And we see that as just uh, um, we're buying better service or we're buying, I mean, what makes that stick in our psychology? I I think psychologically we want to feel like we're getting something special or different or there are fine products that make us feel special. I think that's a large part of it. I think marketers are very, very attuned to the need for people to feel special. Okay, I have to ask you this, Nelson. Do you fly first class? No, I wish I could afford it. Uh, <laughs> I, I personally can't afford first, for sure. And uh, the New York Times doesn't cover uh, business or first. Um, we, we, we fly coach. Okay. We're coming off of um, a scandal um, that I, I mean, the likes of which I'm I haven't seen in my lifetime involving big money buying placement in elite universities, Harvard, etc. Okay, 
Um, and of course, you know, there was a big outrage about it and there's a trial going on. Well, you know, all of that. Uh, no one, no one goes after Harvard. No one goes after the institution. Why is that? I mean, isn't the institution divulging something about themselves when their acceptance is not based upon clearly doing homework? Because some of these students didn't know how to row a boat, let alone ever be in a boat. Uh, and they got scholarships for that. Um, what goes on there? Look, I mean, I think the the system for elite college admissions is is not uh, a particularly egalitarian or fair one. I mean, you have, um, at, for the start, the children of alums have an advantage over everyone else. That's one thing. And then the children of very wealthy alums who donate heavily have an even larger advantage. And I think, you know, that's... That's one of those things when, as you said in the introduction, there are sort of facts of life that are just that, that just exist. I mean, there's a lot of ferment in our society now about racial justice and systematic racism and and you know what is fair. I mean, maybe things will change, but the the Ivy League and elite college admissions process has been um, been the way it is for a long time and. Uh, what I found amazing were these independent college counseling firms that could sort of almost hire lobbyists, you know, to sort of hire former admissions officers from these institutions who could advise clients about what the institutions were looking for. I mean, it's, it was remarkable to me. Yeah, I, I would think, I mean, you talk about morality in the marketplace, and I, and mm-hmm. I, I love how you champion that, but... Uh, the marketplace includes um, um, higher education institutions, and I, I would think that we would be uh, attempting to um, create more egalitarianism where they're concerned as opposed to just accepting the notion that, well, that's an alum, uh, and he donates a lot of money, and so, of course, their child's going to get in. You know, uh, I think there are a lot of people in, in society with a lot of power and you know, and a lot of establishment figures who came up through this system and are invested in it and don't want it to change. Amen. All right, high school sports might not seem to be an obvious example of the velvet rope you write. Uh, what about them caught your eye? You know, this is an area where, you know, that was new to me as I was exploring the book. I had not written about for the paper. Um, And I was really stunned by what I saw, which is the the first element of it is called pay-to-play. And in many school districts, especially in the Midwest, I found, but not certainly not limited to the Midwest, other places too, to have your kid play a sport, you had to pay several hundred dollars a semester or they couldn't play. And if you have two kids playing multiple sports, that adds up pretty quickly and really seemed to rob the school district and the, and the system of the premise of school sports, which was to be a place where everybody comes together. I mean, there's no, you know, rich or poor on the field. It's, your, it's how talented you are at sports. And sports could be a way of for a poor kid to work their way out of you know, you know, poverty and get a sports scholarship, all that kind of thing. 
And this kind of seemed to undermine all of that. And it's basically as school districts uh, have run into financial problems and can't get tax hikes passed, they turn to raising money through pay-to-play. That was the first element of it. The second one was these sort of travel teams or club teams, which are hugely popular, which basically for certain sports like uh, soccer and lacrosse and other sports, the the club you know the the teams are not based around schools they're independent clubs or you know sport sport leagues that are set up and compete and kids travel and they cost thousands of dollars a year and in some places they replace school sports um and it was just really eye opening to me as, and this is the, both of these things are things that have developed over the last 20 25 years and I think unless you're in this world as a parent or um, you know, edu- educator, you're just not aware of. No, and, 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 you know, until I read your book, I wasn't aware of that at all. I don't know that it goes on in the area where where I happen to reside, but... Uh, I, I'm sure, I bet travel teams are there. Uh, I don't know about pay-to-play, but travel teams are, are, are there. Yeah. Okay, but while we're on sports, um, how has the Velvet Rope impacted professional sports? I mean, uh, the Velvet Rope in professional sports is sort of a Petri dish of new ways of product differentiation and and uh, tiering and ways of extracting money from fans. Uh, I write about the Legends section at Yankee Stadium, which is for you know for elite fans on the first and third base lines, um, you know seats right along the field. But if you're not in that section, you can't walk down to the field. There's a moat that separates everybody else from the legend section. I mean, if, if that wasn't a metaphor for sort of how the elite is kind of isolated in our society, I don't know what is. And you know, other stadiums are just dominant, like the new Levi Stadium uh, outside San Francisco for the 49ers, is just dominated by clubs. All the different companies, Silicon Valley, have clubs. I mean, you know, you have, like, extremely expensive tailgate options at fancy restaurants with Michelin stars. I mean, the, the, the way these new stadiums are so oriented towards the richer fans, like sort of what we're talking about in high school sports, is this is no longer a group communal experience where Americans come together. It becomes a, a very much of an elite activity. Class-oriented. Uh, speaking of San Francisco, you spent some time on that. What makes San Francisco so special? I, I think of San Francisco and the Bay Area as kind of ground zero of the velvet rope economy, whether it's concierge medicine, whether it's uh, the sport teams, whether it's all kinds of elite services like uh, you know private private jets to fly to LAX or, or you know fly to LA for less than a you know cost in a private plane, but you know lets you avoid the traffic at San Francisco Airport. And I think the combination of a lot of young people making a lot of money in technology and that has sort of created a sort of a boom market for these elite products that let you skip the line why is it that companies are focusing today on the richest consumers it that seems you know counterintuitive since uh, you know there are so few of them 
Well, I think that's where the the, the greatest growth in disposable income has been. Um, and, you know, the there's been a, just a tremendous boom in wealth from the stock market and just in, you know, salaries for the top 1%. They've done well, and they have disposable income, and they can spend money on leisure and discretionary items. And they, the goal of business wants to capture that in order to grow. There are so many topics that I've, I've got written here that I want to touch bases with you on, and we're coming, we're running out of time. But one of the more important ones that I think might be a motivator to get people involved in resisting some of this, uh, going to the Southwest instead of a different airline, is this the idea that is involved with wealth and life expectancy? Take a, a minute or so and tell our audience what you learned there. In terms of? Well, I think you stated that if you've got money, you'll live 15 years longer than if you right, don't. Right, right, right. In that way, yes. I mean, the health options uh, for the wealthier are clear. I mean, not only do you live longer, you have better access to specialists. You don't wait as long. I mean, I found a company where, God forbid, you have a cancer diagnosis. They will comb through the records and look for a clinical trial for you. So, I mean, in terms of life and death, the, there's been a, just a tremendous boom in services uh, for the wealthy in terms of health care. Yeah, it's crazy. All right. In 30 seconds, sir, please tell everyone where they can learn more about you, get your book, read your blog, and so forth. Sure. Um, you can go to nelsonschwartz.com. Um, you can also you can email me directly at nschwartz at nytimes.com, which is n-s-c-h-w-a-r-t-z at nytimes.com. And um, you can also uh, order Velvet Rope on Amazon, Amazon or wherever you shop, and uh, I think you'll find it interesting. And thanks for your endorsement of the book. I really appreciate it. It's indeed my pleasure. It's a great book. I want everybody to get it. I want everybody to read it. And I want them to take the steps that you outlined and suggested to solve this problem. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time. Wherever you are in the world, remember... Believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.